so three hip conditions that should not be missed. Uh, there are probably more than that, but the big three are going to be slip capital thrombophipsis, developmental dysplasia of the hip, and then septic arthritis. I'm not including perthes because perthes is just uh, an enigma in a black box, as Winston Churchill would describe it as. Um, it's a very difficult thing to deal with and recognize on leaving perthes off the table right now. Um, so I don't want to seem like Judge Judy, the harsh critic, to know it all. Um, I also don't want to be preaching the choir per se, although I'm certain it's uh, a level of that going on here. But nonetheless, um, slip capital permal hypothesis in particular is still being missed. Um, you know, I would have my children see anybody in this community, I'm not kidding. Uh, but at the same time, we have room for improvement in recognizing slip capital permalpipsis early. In the development of dysplasia of the hip, I think we're doing okay, we're improving. And then septic arthritis, I think we're, we're better at that. Uh, but then the, the, uh, the quicksand, if you will, is differentiating septic arthritis from toxic tendonitis. And I've got Larry Zemel up here, who I commonly refer to those patients to, to help me out. So we'll talk more about that. So, slip capital terminal pipsis. It's the most common adolescent hip disorder. It affects about uh, 11 per 100,000 in the United States. In the Northeast, though, it's up to about 17 per 100,000. Uh, what happens is the femoral neck goes anterior to superior. The femoral head actually stays in the acetabulum. And you can see the, the cartoon in the top right with the three grades, mild, moderate, and severe. Uh, the goal is to catch these early when they're mild because they can be treated very well and there's very little long-term impact on the patient. Whereas if you don't catch it until it's a grade three, there's a significant impact on the patient. What I tell the kids when I'm meeting them pre-op, they go, well, this is kind of like an ice cream cone. That's, your ice cream's falling off the cone. And our job is to take a stick and read through the bottom of that. Take a stick, read through the bottom of that popsicle drive it up there and stop your ice cream from falling off. And uh, the kid always smiles, and I think the parents like it too, because we understand the analogy. And I don't think it's a good I just think of it as a piece of ice cream falling off. Okay. Hey. Okay. So the delay in diagnosis is common. The symptoms are vague. You can have hip pain, thigh pain, or knee pain, and that's secondary to the obturator nerve that runs right by the hip. The obturator nerve sends a little twin to the hip, and the obturator nerve supplies sensation all the way down to the medial thigh and knee region. It's not uncommon for the kids to come in complaining of knee pain when in fact it's the hip. Okay? And literature, the average delay is eight weeks in the literature, and patient diagnosed after two months. Uh, symptoms have more severe slips. Okay. So here's a girl walking and with a mild limp, and I think it's her left side, as I recall. A very mild limp, you know, sort of heavy. Um, but this is a kid with what's called a stable slip capital thermogenesis. And this is a typical gait that you'll see. Uh, one thing you can see is that when she walks, her left foot is turned out a little bit more externally in a right foot. And that's, that's what happens when the slip occurs. It does give you this obligatory external rotation of the affected toe. And so, historically, we know there's at least an 8 delay or more. What I did, I just went to the recent literature, 
And I looked up the articles, and the recent literature that talks specifically about delaying diagnosis of subcapital thermopipsis. If you Google this, Google scholars, you'll get many, many, many hits. This is not a new concept. Uh, this top article comes out of Kentucky, this journal pediatrics, and they compare the average delay between primary care, urgent care, whatever, versus orthopedics. And of course, it's in this is an orthopedic journal, so you know what the result is going to be. But uh, the average time to delay was 13 weeks for primary care, zero weeks for orthopedics. Because orthopedics, when we see these, we operate on them that day or the next day, typically. It's not a drop dead emergency, but you want to do it quickly. Uh, this is an article that comes out of New York City. You know, so if you think this is Kentucky, what do they know, right? The worst sophisticated Northeasterners, so you go to New York City, they're in fact a little bit worse than Kentucky. Okay? So much for New York City. And then we go international. Let's go to Denmark. And the Danish, supposedly the happiest people in the world, I heard on the radio last night. Well, they shouldn't be that happy because it takes them 26 weeks to identify a slip cap from the gypsies. All right? So we're doing better than the Danish at least. That's so this problem is worldwide, it's not uncommon. Um, and the reasons for uh, the lack of a prompt diagnosis are many. One is the patient delay. Typically, these are adolescent males, and we all know adolescent males don't talk, right? They just they prefer not to talk. Uh, a lot of these kids will wear heavy clothes and just avoid uh, social interaction with their parents, certainly, okay? So it is a tough group sometimes to get to speak up about it. Uh, it's a misdiagnosis as well. It's not uncommon to be missed, knee pain. And there is a case in this state, sadly it's an orthopedic case, uh, kids who had two normal knee MRIs and one normal knee arthroscopy before the slip was identified. Okay. So orthopedics is not perfect on these as well. Uh, but that case was many years ago, but I, I know that case. Um, there's also delayed referral. So this, this can happen where uh, the slip or the hip problem will be identified but then across our, our uh, referral line, we'll get this routine referral. Please see this kid, 12-year-old male, six weeks of hip pain. And we've taught our referral people and our phone people when they see this sort of thing, jump up immediately from running to us and get that patient in. And Bruce Bowman would be more than happy to see that patient. Very troubling. Um, insurance status is a problem. Medicaid is a, is a nationwide problem. We do know that Medicaid patients in many other um, states do have a lot of problems getting into the healthcare system. We will see any patient regardless of insurance status. So that's hopefully not a problem for us too much. The problem though is the patients who complain of knee pain have the longest delay. So the patients that complain of knee pain who examine the knee have the longest delay. And what you should always remember is just like an x-ray, you look at the joint above and the joint below. If you see the thinking of the knee, you look at the joint above and the joint below, especially make sure it's not the hip. So we need to get these patients in ASAP. So we've trained our telephone folks when somebody calls and says, uh, my little Billy, my little Sally has hip pain, say, you know what, we have a specific question you need to go to. So the physical exam, the main thing we talked about is the loss of hip internal rotation. You get obligatory loss of hip internal rotation. And you saw in that video the girl walking. Uh, this is Kevin Fitzsimmons, who, uh, one of our PAs, who has a body habit of a slip. Um, <laughs> 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 uh, and so here's obligatory external rotation of the left leg, okay? And you can see the right leg is kind of hanging out straight. The left leg has this, the, the foot is kicked in, 
but the hip is, but what is happening, the foot is kicked in, but the thigh and the hip are turning external. So it's that obligatory instrumentation. Uh, it's not uncommon in orthopedics. We get a call, you know, kids coming in, hip pain, blah, blah, blah. You open the door, hire Dr. Thompson, you look and you see this, and the next question is, when did you last eat? And that kid's has to be all. The other way you can check this, you can check uh, internal rotation, is having like prone. And so the right side, he's got, I don't know, maybe 40 degrees of external rotation. So if, if straight up and down is 12 o'clock or zero degrees, we're extra rotating, maybe 40, pretty good. His left side, maybe gets 10 degrees of, of external rotation, okay? I'm sorry, of internal rotation, because he's lost his external rotation. And here's a drawing, a cartoon is showing a patient that were internally rotating in a prone position, and that the left leg, the left leg right here, has lost their internal rotation because they, they have obligatory external rotation. That's a sign of a slip. Could be a sign of any of other hip pathology as well. But in this, in this age group, we talk about the adolescents, this is a slip until proven otherwise. You can also get obligatory external rotation with hip flexion. This is called the Whitman test. You have them lie down your back, and as you flex their hip up, you'll get this obligatory external rotation. It's even the left leg, not on the right leg. Uh, the more severe slips will demonstrate this better. The mild slips will not demonstrate this very well. Uh, the best way to pick up a mild slip is checking hip internal rotation. And when they lose that hip internal rotation, that's a sign something is wrong in the hip and to the centimeter. So the etiology of slip is multifactorial. There is a genetic component to it, certainly. Obesity is clearly related to it. We are in the middle of an obesity epidemic. Uh, so the incidence of this is increasing. Here's a kid lying down. You can see uh, the right leg, I'm sorry, the left leg is significantly externally rotated and shortened. Uh, he has this rather severe slip on the left side. It's, we think uh, genetically that some kids may be predisposed to this because of thermal retroversion, which then increases the shear forces across the physis. And you put this extra weight on the kid and that physis then gradually slips. Weight loss can decrease the likelihood of a contralateral slip. So again, all the more reason we should be advising our patients that are heavy, not to be so heavy, and to lose weight. Um, the classification, grade one, two, and three, sort of mild, moderate, and severe. The other thing, the other way to classify these are stable versus unstable. Stable is sort of the bread and butter variety. The kid has been walking around for a while, has this vague hip, groin, thigh pain. Um, it's a very mild slip, maybe grade one or grade two. Uh, these patients will generally do pretty well. The avascular necrosis rate uh, is less than 5%. However, there's an unstable variety where the patient does not walk, they cannot walk. And this is akin to a traumatic fracture. It's akin to a fractured femoral neck. The avascular necrosis rate here is about 50% or so. Okay? It's a very different animal. Now, what you don't want to do is to send a patient out with a stable slip miss it and have them two, three, four, five weeks later become unstable. Uh, in, in some orthopedic circles, they will admit the kid with a stable slip to the hospital for fear of that becoming, becoming unstable. And I do know of some uh, anecdotal cases. Uh, there's one in Cincinnati happened to a guy named Al Crawford who's like, he's not quite Jesus in the orthopedic world, he's Moses or somebody. Um, and he had one that was stable, became unstable, became a disaster. 
And so he will speak uh, very firmly on this, that it should be admitted and treated promptly. So the treatment of stable slips, the, the goal is to prevent the slip from getting worse, avoid avascular necrosis, osteonecrosis, don't penetrate the joint with the screw. And again, it's that, back to that ice cream cone, with the ice cream falling off the cone, we're taking a popsicle stick and we're sticking it up there, sort of shish kebabbing that, that ball of ice cream prevent it from falling off, right? It's an inside to single screw, the incisions are certainly no bigger than an inch. You do this under a C-arm fluoroscopy, probably takes a very short period of time, certainly less than an hour to do this. And here's a good example, the grade one slip right up here, and you can see this irregularity of femoral of the growth plate of the physis, and now a single screw. And is Tim Brown in the audience? There's a radiologist in the audience, and it's a Dr. Thompson, what about the right hip on this kid? Look at that irregular growth plate. And you are correct, this kid is developing a contralateral slip, which can occur. Um, we're gonna visit this patient in a few minutes. Um, so we gotta watch out for the contralateral slip. <coughs> Uh, the severe but stable slips, uh, the treatment there, you can pin them in situ, but the problem is they have so much proximal femoral deformity that some of the kids don't like it. And they have this obligatory hip external rotation, and because of that, they find riding a bicycle extremely hard as they go to pedal, the foot will cross over to the other pedal. So some kids will want something done about that down the road. And you can do this osteotomy a year or so later to get uh, correction of it. Some people do this acutely, uh, but I'm kind of what we said here. And then the unstable slips, and this is the same kit I showed you in the first one. Now that slip, you can see this, this right hip, this slip, this is a very severe slip. This is a huge problem. This is treated with a, uh, what's called a done osteotomy, open reduction compensation. And you can tell four screws in the hip is a lot worse than one screw in the hip. Uh, but actually, the kid actually did very, very well from this procedure. Uh, but this, this open reduction internal fixation via the done osteotomy has a much higher risk of avascular necrosis. You can do this on the unstable slips and you can restore the normal anatomy. The other option is to pit where it is and then do something later on. But some people say just go ahead and do it when you're there. Um, but the, the ADN risk is certainly real. So the, the baby with people are ridges. But the bottom line is recognize these early, get them into work early, you will drop what we're doing and get that patient seen. And the contralateral hip is a problem. Uh, about 15 to 25% develop a contralateral slip. You can prophylactically pin the other side. And we do know if you prophylactically pin the other side, we've seen infections, we've seen fractures, we've seen joint penetration. It's not a benign operation, so you only want to operate if you really need to. What we generally do is if the trigradial cartilage is still open, you will advise the parents that the kid is at a high risk of contralateral slip and you may want to think about it. When I was in the Army, we were in Hawaii, we'd get these kids in these small Pacific islands, the big Samoan guys that have, I think they had this, this epidemic in Samoa. And there we just pinned both kids automatically, just because of the time distance travel, and we knew these kids were going to develop on the other side. So if you have, the patient's not going to follow up, social situation's poor, or they live far away, it might be better to pay them ahead of time. So the take-home message, the old adage that kids don't sprain ankles, they fracture kids' growth plate, I think it applies to the hip as well. Kids don't strain or sprain the hip. Think of a slip whenever you see a kid with hip, by anything, and call them. 
All right, on to DDH. So early diagnosis is vital, and I've just covered what I think of the easy thing on slips. But also slips is where we have really tremendous room for improvement, because about 50% of patients do have delay in diagnosis uh, nationwide. We're doing DDH, I think we're getting a little bit better at this. Uh, early diagnosis is vital, careful physical exam, identify those cases. The ultrasound improves detection, but doesn't eliminate all cases. And currently, uh, the American Academy Board of Pediatrics recommends routine annual exam with selective screening ultrasound, and the literature supports this. So in the United States, we haven't gone to universal screening. Other countries have. Um, to me, what's more challenging is the kids with certain risk factors and when to obtain further imaging. Because one of the problems we know is that of uh, all the adults with hip dysplasia, who need hip, um, who need hip replacements, who have hip dysplasia, only 10% of them had known hip instability. So if you take 100 adults with hip dysplasia that need total hip joints, and that hip dysplasia came from childhood, but only 10% of them knew they had some sort of hip problem. So we're missing a lot of late dysplasia. And we debate whether the ultrasound can pick that up. And maybe an x-ray at age one is the way to go, especially for the breech female, the breech male, and the family history positive female. This is in the clinical um, uh, guidelines as shown by the American Academy of Pediatrics, which I think we all endorse in this room. The compounding factor, though, is most EDH cases are simply females with no other risk factors. Just straightforward females, no other risk factors. You know, we all get nervous with the breach, we all get nervous with family history, but just a routine female, you don't get so nervous. The recent literature is a little bit mixed. Again, I just, I just did a Google search. Austria, they've instituted the national screen program since 1992. They've noticed a 42% decrease in the need for pelvic osteotomy, which is a procedure done for late uh, identified disciplined uh, hips. Hospital admissions have decreased about 50% for open hip reduction. So in a country like Austria, they can do it right, but I think that's a Obviously, a smaller country that uh, controls. Scotland, they found screening was useful, but they still had some late cases showing up. You could argue that maybe the quality of the ultrasounds weren't that good. Australia actually noticed an increased incidence of late presentation when they tried to institute the screening system. And then Turkey is trying to institute the screening system, uh, but they've also noted that firstborn females are the most common with a positive ultrasound. So other countries are struggling with this as well. So the physical exam is the most important part. You want a quiet child, quiet child, not cluster tipping. You want a stable or firm exam surface, gentle exam, not a white knuckle exam. And like one of the professor told me, he goes, it's like porcupine intercourse, very careful. So maybe that's the quote, huh? <laughs> well, to God, that's what they teach you for it. How's that? So the two, the two tests you're checking is the Ortolani and the Barlow. The Barlow is where you're pushing the hip out, and that's in the lower one, you're pushing the hip out. The Ortolani is where you're popping the hip back in. Again, very gentle, it's not a white knuckle. You're not squeeze, squeezing the bejesus out of those legs, okay? And uh, just to show you how gentle I am, here's a live exam. I turned down the volume so you can hear us talking. But this is the left hip, you'll see it pop out and in, Try and put it in, and now it's going to go out. You see a little clump there. That's out. It's in. It's out. And 
So that's where the exam is done. The exam is not done with hyper A deduction. I have seen some people hyper A deduct these hips and say they're stable. Like, oh, of course they're stable. You know? uh, this is where this is how to do the exam. You could argue though that this kid, normally I'll take my hand and put it underneath the sacrum, and with my thumb I'll grab the, the opposite side of the pelvis to try to stabilize it a little bit better. But here for uh, videotape purposes, and after credit for his phone for doing the videotape. Uh, videotape purposes, I have my hand just in the left thigh. Okay, so that's that's how the exam is done. The treatment's in pelvic harness, and uh, on the right you can see a kid. Here's a, a hip that's that's certainly uh, out of the joint. This this ball right here is the femoral head, and it should be over to the left and under this little white slope, which is the acetabular roof. And here's the same hip successfully treated several weeks later. So the pelvic harness, great little device, embedded in Czechoslovakia in the 1950s. It really hasn't changed much since then, but it, it really can work nicely. After three months of age, though, the best clinical sign is limited AB, abduction or asymmetric thigh folds. So we cover the questions, everybody. Uh, the patient on the right, you can see the asymmetric thigh fold, and I think the limited abduction is pretty obvious in this patient. But here's, here's the nightmare. Of course, these are both girls with pink socks. Um, the patient on the left, this is limited abduction, asymmetric abduction. This girl has tremendous ligamentous laxity. This girl is much older. I think she's about 14 months or 16 months. She needed to go to the OR for a closed reduction. Um, and this had gone through our system, but you know, ligamentously lax kid, I, I, this is going to be tough. This is a really tough one. So, uh, the limited abduction and the, the asymmetric thigh fold can be obvious or it can be very subtle off the one on the left. Okay. And again, limited abduction, question mark. Um, you know, that, that, that's a tough one. So, lastly, on to the most controversial topic of all uh, septic arthritis versus transient synovitis. I included this because I just want to focus on hip things, uh, more emergency hip things. I think we're pretty good at identifying it, but again, the problem comes when you do with it. So the Coker criteria out there, I think most people are familiar with these. This was devised by Min Coker up in Boston to help differentiate between septic arthritis and transient synovitis. And if you have all four of these parameters positive, I forget the exact number, but it's about a 97% certainty that you have a septic hip, at least in their system. And they did a they did a, uh, a sort of a retrospective review. They applied it prospectively, and it seemed to work in their system. Uh, subsequently, we found out that the CRP is probably a better independent predictor of septic arthritis than sedum, but you can also have the CRP in there as well. Uh, the problem with the Coker criteria is not perfect. Several studies disagree with their findings, and uh, one of the problems is that, that I don't really understand necessarily. All of COCA patients underwent the hip hypersynthesis. So some people think he sort of picked the worst of the worst, the ones that clearly were the most obvious in the hip. Uh, Lyme disease is a confounding variable. There's a tremendous clinical overlap with transient synovitis and Lyme disease, we all know that. And now, Kindele Kinde, this is just going to make our lives even worse. Uh, fortunately, it's a limit, an age limit uh, here between like, six months to three years or six months to four years. But this was further confounded how you differentiate between septic arthritis and transient synovitis. So the only thing I'm going to uh, mention here is this isn't perfect. What I found useful is pain with short arc range of motion. 
The transient cinnabitis, now this is not literature supported. This is not double blind randomized. This is a bald guy with gray hair. Um, you know, talking earlier, it's valuable in that. But transient cinnabitis, in my experience, I see 80 to 90% range of motion without significant pain. So the transient cinnabitis should get him to move pretty good. And it's only at the extremes of pain where the kid will jump a little bit. Now, you gotta do that gently. You can't just go there and kind of wail away. Just do it slowly, gently, reassure the kid, give him a nice little chat about something. Um, you know, and, and typically pretty good range of motion. Lyme disease, I, mean, I tend to see a kid with bigger effusions. I always tell our residents, Lyme disease to me, I see the biggest, fattest, most soreness knee that doesn't hurt a lot. So the Lyme disease, I'm always impressed by how big the effusion is, but they have pretty good range of motion. It's usually about 60%, maybe a little bit more, without significant pain. It's only at the extremes that they really start to, to uh, get a little nervous. Septic arthritis, on the other hand, less than 30% range of motion with pain. So if you go and you barely move it and that kid hollers, and you're not hollering because you're there with a white coat, and you're not hollering because you're rapidly moving your leg, you're taking your time, and you've established a force child, this is a different story. Um, there is an article in the Journal of Bone and Joint Disease, Septic Arthritis versus Lyme Disease in the Knee. It's the same idea of COPER using these four criteria fever, short arc pain, CRP over four, age less than two. Um, and when they found all four factors were present, the predictive probability of septic arthritis was 100%. So, so to me, I like this study, and I reviewed it for the journal uh, because of the short arc pain. And now that is a very qualitative assessment. You know, what is a short arc? What is pain, right? But I think if you just take your time and the kid moves it pretty well, chances are it's probably not going to be infectious, whereas if they have pain with a short arc, a higher likelihood. Uh, the problem with this study, though, is they picked out kids less than two. I don't know too many kids less than two that are running out with the deer in Lyme, Connecticut. Uh, kids less than two, I haven't seen too many Lyme disease from that age So, uh, So for, for septic arthritis, Lyme disease, septic arthritis, and transient cinnabitis, and try to use a short arc range of motion as one of the clinical criteria to make a decision. So, this short talk, uh, three hip conditions that we've discussed, and three hip conditions that will benefit from early diagnosis. The slip capital femoral pipsis, I'm gonna be a little bit like Judge Judy, and we haven't improved. When we look at the na national data, we still have a problem recognizing slip capital femoral pipsis. I don't know whether this is a lack of musculoskeletal education, whether it's the urgent care centers coming around with people that aren't really trained in this sort of thing, but we still have uh, improvements to make. DDH, I think we're making significant gains, but we just have to identify those late presenters. And then with infections, uh, try to short our range of motion tests and see how it works for you. Thank you.